Welcome to the second part of my conversation with the guy who wrote the book on how to move an organization from good to great. Literally, he wrote the book, Jim Collins. In the first part of our conversation, Jim and I covered the core frameworks at the heart of, to me, the best book that every nonprofit leader should read, with the possible exception of my own. His book is called From Good to Great in the Social Sector. As we continue part two of our conversation, we build on this framework as a launch pad for a conversation that every single one of us is having, how to navigate uncertainty, disruption, and chaos. Jim's groundbreaking research in his book, Great by Choice, offers us not just answers, but exciting hope that organizations can not just make it to the other side of our crises, but they can do so and thrive. I learned so much from this conversation, and I know you will too. Greetings, and welcome to my podcast, Nonprofits Are Messy. I'm your host, Joan Gary. In my work, I offer counsel and advice to CEOs and boards of larger nonprofits. I'm a keynote speaker, an author of a best-selling book with a very novel name, Joan Gary's Guide to Nonprofit Leadership, and I'm a columnist for the Chronicle of Philanthropy. I'm also the co-founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, an online membership site where we help small nonprofits thrive. But most of all, I consider myself a compassionate truth teller and a champion for board and staff leaders. In my podcast, I dig deep into the issues faced by nonprofit leaders, you can always count on getting my personal point of view, and you can count on experts who will share their expertise in fields ranging from fundraising to leadership transitions, to team building, to board management, to organizational strategy, to self-care. The list goes on. So welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. Let's get started. So I'm just having the best time ever. We're talking to Jim Collins student and teacher of what makes great companies tick. He's a Socratic advisor to leaders in the business and social sectors, and he has authored or co-authored six books that have together sold 10 million copies worldwide, including from Good to Great, Good to Great in the Social Sector, Built to Last, How the Mighty Fall, Great by Choice, and his most recent work, Turning the Flywheel, published in February 2019. He's an amazing guy, and our conversation is marvelous. Let's continue. Let me just zoom out one moment on the flywheel, and then we, we can leave it. But I think it'll really help in the social sectors. So first of all, if you look in the business sector, uh, you really see the power of flywheel. Not, not, not as a business idea, but as a, the idea of architecture of momentum. So, for example, uh, Amazon uh, took the flywheel concept and made it the way that Amazon builds momentum. If, you know, we lower prices for more customers, that will bring more people to the site, which will increase third-party sellers, which then will drive around to expanding the store and extend distribution, which then will you know, allow us to increase fixed costs, which uh, uh, lower uh, fixed costs per unit, and then we'll be able to lower prices or more offerings, and around around the flywheel will go. Amazon's not an event. It's not a moment. It's not an episode. It's a flywheel. Right. And yeah. so then you come to the social sectors and here's something that's become very clear to me about flywheels. And, and this, you know, and the, when you look at the flywheels, there's a thing called good to great in the social, uh, um, 
turning the flywheel monograph on this idea that there's a number of social sector flywheels in there. There's an education one, a healthcare one, and an arts organization. And if you look at those flywheels, there's a really key thing. Think about a flywheel as a reinforcing loop, kind of like a clock, right? And you start at the top, say great music or impact on the kids or whatever it is. And you kind of come around. And if you go from 12 to 6 on the flywheel, that should be all about what you do for the world. And that drives you down to the 6. But then as you come from 6 back up to 12 on the flywheel, that's all about capturing resources that will be fuel. And that's where your resource engine comes in. Your resource engine is how you turn the left side of the flywheel back up to 12 Then you redeploy that fuel back into the right side of the flywheel Mm -hmm. and then more fuel on the left and around and around and around and around it goes. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, I, um, my team actually makes fun of me because I'm actually a, just a geek about infographics and it is it's essentially the flywheel is a is an infographic that show that is like a clock and yeah. and it is cranked yeah. um and and it's, momentum. Uh, and it's about momentum exactly what creates momentum so <clears throat> so with that as a as an as a backdrop let's move on to um chaos turbulence, uncertainty, disruption, our lives. The world as it is today. Uh, and um, and literally in, in, in almost every, like in almost every imaginable way, you wake up one morning and you say like it couldn't get any more uncertain or chaotic and then it does. And your book, Great by Choice, builds on this builds on what we have just talked about sort of as foundation. And, uh, and Aaron from your team was, uh, wise enough to rem- suggest that I reread it. And, uh, there is a link to this book. And I was, um, I, I was telling Jim before we started recording that I'm working with, uh, Karen, which is, a uh, one of the large three kind of the big large rehab, um, organizations, Hazleton and Betty Ford and Karen and, and, um, and we were talking about how valuable it would be to, <laughs> for their board members to read this book before, uh, before their, um, the retreat that I'm working on with them because they're doing a leadership transition and they're looking at the, the differences in year two and year three of their strategy based on this uncertainty and they got a whole bunch of things going on. Um, let's talk first in Great by Choice, uh, maybe a little bit about how you approached answering this question. So, right, how does someone actually not just make it through to the other side in tough times, but actually thrive? Yeah. So, so first of all, um, uh, Great by Choice is a nine-year research project by myself and a, a tremendous collaborator, co-author, Morton Hansen. And uh, I, I was really privileged to be able to work with Morton on this because he's an absolutely brilliant methodologist and, and a great par- friend, great partner. Um, and, and Morton and I, uh, kind of coming out of uh, the early 2000s, uh, we, we decided that you had to take a look at the question of why do some companies – uh, thrive in uncertainty, even chaos, and others do not. When you're hit by big, fast-moving forces, uh, disruptions and shocks that you can neither predict nor control, uh, what separates those who overperform 
from those who underperform or worse. And our, our approach in all of our work, I mean, I'm, I'm deeply driven by the curiosity and the research. I just want to get insights and principles that will be durable and helpful and right. And the way we do it is we use a comparative analysis where you go back and you find companies that were in the same spot, same time, same resources, same potential, same environment, same shocks, same disruption, same uncertainties, and one prevails. And in fact, in this case, it was studying small entrepreneurial companies that went on to become 10 times better than their industry. I mean, these were the gigantic winners, but they started from being very vulnerable to their environment and the environment was harsh. In contrast to others that were in the same place, in the same environment, and they either didn't survive or they didn't do as well. And you compare them and you say, what was different? What did Andy Grove and Gordon Moore do different? How did they think different than the folks over at their comparison company, AMD? How did John Brown at Stryker think different than the folks at United States Surgical, right? And you're always asking, what was different? What was different? What was different? So in this... Then, then sometimes we, we do the research, we have tons of data tables, uh, you run lots of analyses, but in the end, you need to have concepts. And let me just, first of all, put a, a kind of an analogy of a story around this, because we'll probably come back to it. Because sometimes I find, after you've done the data, to have a touchstone story that captures what it's about is helpful. Yep, I agree with that. And it's actually the story of two polar explorers. So... In 1911, two teams of explorers lined up on the coast of Antarctica with the same exact goal, to be the first in history to reach the South Pole. One team was led by the Norwegian Roald Amundsen, and the other was led by the Brit Robert Falcon Scott. And they left for the pole within, within days of each other. So you've got a turbulent, harsh, hostile, unpredictable environment and you have an audacious goal to pursue. It's not that they went to the South Pole to survive. They went to the South Pole to achieve something great. And they left for the pole within days of each other. Amundsen got there first. Scott arrived something like 38 days later. Amundsen made it all the way back to his base camp, alive, intact, on time, his whole team safe. Robert Falcon Scott and every member of his team never made it back. And so that is a really great example. You think today in this environment, you've got a lot of nonprofits some of them are going to be Amundsen. Some of them are going to be Scott. Yep. And, and what we're looking at, and it turns out that the leadership behaviors and approaches that separated those 10x companies in turbulent environments, in contrast to those that didn't do as well, map almost perfectly to the differences in the leadership style you would see in Roland Amundsen and Robert Falcon Scott. And those three big behaviors that jumped out is a fanatic discipline and what we call the 20-mile march empirical creativity, and productive paranoia, all three of which are relevant for the nonprofit sector. So we're going to take them one at a time. But first, I want to say, um, tell folks about what kind of, you were a little gobsmacked about what was not at the heart of exponential success. Mm. Well, so, uh, you know, what's interesting is you would tend to think that uh, these leaders and the way they would lead, that they were necessarily more creative, that they were more visionary, that they were more charismatic, uh, that they were more risk-taking, that they were more almost heroic, that they made bigger bets. These, the, again, you go back to the comparative analysis, and what you find is it's not that they didn't have vision and they weren't creative and they didn't place big bets. They did. It's just you can't argue 
that they had more of that than their comparisons because their comparisons were often also, the ones who didn't make it were also visionary and creative and bold and placed big bets and yet they died. So, so you, then you have to say, okay, so those aren't the differentiating variables and what jumped out is really differentiating the good to great principles were there. We could look at that, the first two principles and all the things we talked about. But as the environment became more harsh and uncertain, as the environment became more chaotic, as it became more potentially lethal, that what happened is those behaviors, what was the extra dimension they had was their level of discipline, the 20-mile march, their level of empiricism in their creativity, and their productive paranoia to protect against unforeseen events. So let's let's talk about fanatical discipline because we we you've talked about discipline throughout this conversation. And um, in a world where you are hungry to change the world, mm-hmm. where you have a homeless shelter and you want to add beds because you know there's a wait list, or you're you run a suicide hotline and you. Um, you just can't, you just don't feel like you can stop until you have increased the number of folks you've helped. Discipline becomes really, really hard. So I want to, the, the, the 20 mile march is going to, I think, be pretty mm. straightforward. And then I want to, I, I want to um, offer you some thoughts about what I think my listeners might say as well. That's all well and good, Jim, but here's what gets in our way. Mm. Yeah. So, so first of all, so what is the 20 mile march? So first, let's just go back to Amundsen and Scott to, to illustrate the idea. So imagine you were going to go across the Antarctic plateau and you've got kind of two approaches to doing it. Uh, one is to just simply let the conditions determine your pace. When the weather is really good, we're going to go as far as possible. We're going to go as fast as possible. We're going to grow as much as possible. We're going to lose all discipline on the upside because we can do more and more and more. And, and then when it's difficult conditions, right, the, the weather turns against you, it's in your face, it's just the last thing you want to do is get out of your tent. Well, then you can sit in your tent and complain about the weather and say, gosh, if the weather was better, we'd be ma- making better progress. Being erratic. Uh, and, and that was more Scott. Then if you take Amundsen, the other approach would say, no, I'm going to be a 20-mile marcher, which basically says we determine our pace, not the, not, not the environment. And we're going to have the discipline to be on a 20-mile march. We get up, and it might be really great weather, and we could do 50 miles, but we're not going to. We're going to stay closer to our 20-mile march. And then we wake up, and it's storm and frost and all kinds of, you know, frostbite and it's hideous conditions. We're still going to advance closer to our goal. We're going to stay of the discipline of a 20-mile march. And let me just share with you this one marvelous moment in the, in the Amundsen-Scott story. Um, there's this wonderful moment where they're very, very close to the, the, the South Pole, being the first in history to reach there. And the weather was actually good. And Amundsen and his team, they could have in one day made it to the pole, like one super monstrous day, they could have made it to the pole. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and imagine the pressure of the, because they don't know where Scott is. They don't know if they might lose the prize. They don't know. It's right there in front of them. They spent years preparing for this. It's tantalizingly right in front of them. We can do a, this huge day and get there. And Amundsen says, no. And they did 17 miles that day. They stayed closer to the 20 miles. It doesn't have to be precisely 20, but it's basically kind of in that, you know, sort of staying in that range. Right. For a very simple reason. If we extend ourselves because we lose discipline and then uh, the worst storm imaginable comes and we're depleted, we might never make it back. 
We so, stay on the march. Okay. And so this yep. is what we think about nonprofits today. If they were undisciplined, what we learned is it's what you do before the storm comes. It has a lot to do with how well you do when the storm comes. If you were undisciplined and depleted going in, you're in a lot worse shape. I I was telling Jim earlier that I was reading, rereading the book this weekend and I stopped and went and got my pen and paper. And here's a quote, and I want you to listen to it, my friends. If you deplete your resources, run yourself to exhaustion, and then get caught at the wrong, wrong moment by external shock, you can be in serious trouble. And I do believe that that is a condition that many nonprofits are finding themselves in at the moment. Um, the challenge, so I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, imagine myself to be a listener who says, yeah, that's all well and good, Jim. Yeah. Yeah. I got that. But my, you're telling me, are you telling me that even though there's a wait list for my services, that I shouldn't do everything in my power to increase, to build the infrastructure, to, to, to get everybody on that wait list into my you know, into my food pantry or into my homeless shelter, or you're telling me I should leave some of them outside? Are you kidding me? Or you're telling me that I'm going to go to my board and say, you know, we could do more next year. But uh, I don't know. Well, you know, I think we ought to put some money away. I think we ought to start a cash reserve. So I don't think we should do quite as much as we um, as we could. Uh, or just simply the need-based ambition of a CEO that just says, I, I, you, you can't tether me to a more limited goal. I mean, I'm changing the world here, dude. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so, so, so those are great questions. And, and so first of all, I go back to the data. And uh, the data, so we were looking at entrepreneurial companies that ended up over time being the ones that changed the world in their space. So Amgen bringing, you know, biotechnology drugs to the world and, 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 uh, you know, lots of people had, had blood products that they wouldn't have otherwise had. You have, uh, Intel changing the world with microelectronics by consistently doubling, uh, chips at affordable costs or, you know, basically doubling every uh, 12 to 18 months, affordable chips, uh, affordable, uh, number of components on the chip. Moore's law. Uh, you, you have, uh, you know, uh, Southwest Airlines in a very consistent, disciplined way, uh, building itself where most other airlines never, never survived, and then being able to provide more affordable air travel for people around the world. Now, those aren't necessarily saving the world the same way, say, a homeless shelter would. But the idea is that they had the same pressures upon them. They had investor pressures. They had Wall Street pressures, right? They had pressures of, gosh, you know, there was one point where there were a 100 cities clamoring for Southwest business in the late 1990s. They opened four one year because they said, if we open more than that, we're going to compromise our balance sheet. We're going to compromise our culture. We're going to compromise our disciplines. And then if a bad thing happens, and it always does, we will be stretched and we won't be able to continue our service. And so a second thing is this, look, they're serving, you, 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 this is a long game. And if you're clobbered, when do people need you the most? Right. It is a time like this. And what that means is responsible means that you make sure you are as strong as possible when the times come. Yep. When people need you the most. And you can say, we were conservative in the good times so we can be of service in the bad times. And there's one thing I want to say about this. This is the productive paranoia part. 
our leaders were paranoid that they, they predicted 11 of the last three recessions. They saw the black cloud in every silver lining. They were always asking, what if, what if, what if? Because there always is eventually a what if that happens. I have a message for both uh, folks running nonprofits, but especially people who are funders. Would you really think it's crazy to you look at the companies we studied? They had the most conservative balance sheets as they built also and grew their companies so that yep. they could be positioned against shocks. You wouldn't tell them that that's crazy. You would tell them that's financially responsible so that they can continue to win when the hard times come. Yep. Why don't we apply the same idea that the nonprofit will? And when people say, well, I only want to, I, 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 the idea somehow seems undisciplined to to invest and support so that people have reserves that aren't really going direct to program. Look, you need to have oxygen canisters in case you're on the side of Everest and a storm comes. You can't say, gosh, I wish it would have brought, would have thought to bring them. You need them before the storm comes. And so I actually think, and Phil Buchanan, uh, one of your guests talked about this. Yep. One of the really damaging things is this idea of not being willing to step up and support things like reserves, basic systems, all the things that we would expect of a company. And this is the great irony, is that when you starve a nonprofit for being able to build its buffers and reserves, you're doing something that you wouldn't do to a company. That's correct. That's totally correct. Um, yeah, and I, I think some of that is also sort of the gestalt of a nonprofit leader too. Um, it's not just a, boy, why would I put money away when I can, when I can help one more person? Um, I also think that, um, you know, I talk a lot with clients about where's your crisis management plan, mm. right? To sit down just for four hours and say, okay, we're going to say, what's the head, what, what's the worst things that could happen to our organization? And let's and try to think. Times 10. Yes. And then try to think about what are some of the steps we would take if yeah. those things happened. Um, yeah. I was just talking about Karen, the, the, mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the healthcare organization and the rehab sector. They had a pandemic protocol. Now, was it, was it COVID-19? No. No, no one knew about COVID-19 or the magnitude or scope, but they had something in place and it's really served them well. Um, so nonprofit leaders have to be, have to say, okay, I want you to take the, take off your rose colored glasses and your glasses half full thing. And you're, you know, I can change the world. I'm very optimistic. I'm a Pollyanna. And I, I want you to do the New York Times headline of what's the worst headline you could see in the newspaper about the work that you do. And, but when, talk about what you do to prevent that from happening. And I, I so I, I, I can't, I, I can't not let this go by. I have a question for you though, Jim. Um, how do you know when, so, so the first, so the first leg of the three-legged stool here was fanatical discipline. We got that. Yep. This one is productive paranoia. Yep. What are the signs that tell a nonprofit leader that their paranoia is not productive? Ah, that's a, that's a, that's a great question. So, um, productive paranoia, uh, it, it really, I would suggest, uh, takes a couple of forms, uh, the way you really want to think about it. So unproductive paranoia is where you just freeze up and you're just like, we can't, 
we can't uh, uh, move forward. We just want to curl up and only just try to survive. Uh, we're never going to take any a- any risks and so forth. So let me address this from uh, from from two sides. Okay. Uh, the, the the first is. Uh, so let me just use a, a story that's in Great by Choice, but I think it illustrates it really well. And it's the, it's the story of David Brashears on Mount Everest in 1996. And Brashears had a great goal, which is to try to get an IMAX camera on top of Everest, which he eventually did do, and shoot a film from the top of the world. And he woke up and he, and he noticed that there was, that the, that it was really cold, colder than expected. He was high on the mountain, I think camp three or four. And, uh, and also there were winds that really disturbed him. And he looked down the mountain and he saw all these other climbers starting to swarm up the mountain on that particular day. And he began as a, a productive paranoid asking what if questions? Well, what if that does presage a storm? What if those winds are going to get really bad? What if the storm hits just as all those other climbers are up here and we all get caught at the Hillary step and we're all in trouble? So now at that point, the key to productive paranoia is you ask, what actions do I take? And the action that he said is, we're going to go back down the mountain today to reset so that uh, we can, if it is a really bad storm, we'll sit it out and we'll wait and come back and uh, come climb another day. And if it's not, we're still in pretty good shape and we we can go back up the mountain. When I asked David, why were you able to make that decision? And the other teams went up that day. Why were you different? Yep. He said, well, because I, I had more options. I said, what do you mean you had more options? He said, I brought enough oxygen canisters for three summit bids. I, and they didn't. And I had more options and the other teams got caught in the storm. And some of those climbers never, ever made it back down the mountain. But he said that the key is that was a decision I made before the expedition. Right. I put the buffers aside to begin with. So again, action to go down and sit and then come back and then action even before like asking yourself, what do we set aside? What are the practical things we do? What are the oxygen canisters? It's not freaking out. It's actually very stoic. Then the third thing is this. David never lost sight of the big goal. And the big goal was to put an IMAX camera on top of Everest. It wasn't, hey, we're going to survive on Everest. It was, we are going to survive so that we can achieve the big goal of an IMAX camera on top. So productive paranoia means how do we make the paranoid decisions that ultimately allow us to do or contribute something truly great? That's the productive paranoia. Um, yeah, I mean, I, we certainly know a, a, a number of leaders who uh, have the paranoia part down down to it fairly well. And, you know, what if the press finds out or, oh my goodness, my board might be unhappy or my biggest don't, you know, so, so it has to be, it's, it's in the service of being ready, isn't it? Yes. Being ready and, and, and being very practical. And then, you know, and that actually, there's one thing in this and we haven't talked about the third leg, which is uh, the empirical creativity. And so, um, you talk about this notion of both placing big bets and taking risks and bounding those risks because you have a certain kind of paranoia to be strong. There's a principle in, uh, in Great by Choice we call fire bullets and fire cannonballs. And the idea being that if imagine you have a ship bearing down on you and you only have a certain amount of gunpowder and you respond by taking all your gunpowder and putting it at a big cannonball and you fire it out there and it misses, it splashes in the water and here comes the ship and you're out of gunpowder, you're in trouble. Big uncalibrated cannonball. But suppose instead you took a little bit of gunpowder, you put it in a bullet, a calibration shot, you fire, you miss by 30 degrees, but you reset. Fire another bullet, you're now only 10 degrees off, 
fire another bullet, ping, you hear the sight of the ship. And then you take your gunpowder, then you put it in a cannonball, and you fire on a calibrated line of sight. Mm-hmm. Here's what our research showed. The question isn't, do you never place big bets because you're paranoid, or do you do big risk-taking bold things? It's the wrong question. Yeah. The question is, have you fired the bullets to get calibration? And once you've proven that it's calibrated, then you place a calibrated big bet. The big cannonball. So and you're, talk, was, you're talking about piloting and testing. Exactly. Pilots are bullets. and th- But then you also have to have, okay, the bullets worked. We've proven it. We built one, right? It is actually functional. Now we're going to place the big bet to make it really uh, successful. So there you're both bounding risk with your pilots, your bullets, and doing something bold when you have the calibration. It allows you to achieve a genius of the and. That's productive as opposed to just survivalist. It's also, I have found it to be a really good strategy for change management and getting people comfortable with navigating a journey from one from one state to another or from a here to a there is to say the the person who really is hanging on if you let's say your your organization wants to go from point A to point B the folks that are hanging on to A they're hanging on to it because maybe they're risk averse or maybe they were recruited to be part of an organization that looks like A and you want to go to B um uh that piloting or testing or testing and showing proof of concept can be a really, really valuable um, strategy for getting folks who are all about A to say, to say, oh, you, that path to B, that act, that could, that could work. You, it you also, are, I'm sorry, absolutely right. I was just going to say, I, I really want to reinforce that point. You're absolutely right because what our research so consistently showed is that the thing that the right people want to really be part of, aside from the cause, is something that works. There's something really motivating about, hey, this works. And when you show them this works, the right people just want to get behind and make it work even more. The other thing that's really interesting about this, Jim, is that um, there's a, another book that I really like by a woman named Kathleen Kelly Janis out of Stanford. Also, it's called Social uh, Startup Success. Yes. And she studies 200 nonprofit organizations that kind of get stuck, right? So we know that uh, 67% of the million and a half nonprofits out there have budgets under a million bucks, and about a, two-thirds of them have budgets under half a million. And she wanted to understand how is it that that an organization starts and it gets stuck and it, and it can't, you know, obviously the, the jargon term is how does it scale? And, um, and one of the, one of the keys for her in her study was that the folks that were able to scale, that get unstuck, they tried something. They tested something. They that piloting was absolutely instrumental to whether a nonprofit stayed small or actually was able to make a bigger mark in the world. Well, you know what's interesting about that is that actually um, uh, I'm, I'm was delighted to to learn about her uh, research from your uh, from your show on that. And what's interesting is 
when we studied the, the companies that did well in highly turbulent environments or the companies that made the leap from good to great, it was the same pattern. Yeah. So this is one of those great universal principles that's not a business principle or a social sector principle. The principle of empirical creativity, the principle of bullets and cannonballs, the principles of proving concept and then scaling up, right? This is a principle of a great organization. It's not a business principle. It's not a nonprofit principle. It's a principle of greatness. And, you know, kind of through our entire conversation, we come back to that idea that, you know, it's, it's these basic disciplines, these basic principles. They'll come to life different in a business. They'll come to life different in a nonprofit, but the principle is unifying. And that's where uh, I, I think we, we are most helpful to people is to say, we're not going to be trapped into business versus nonprofit. We're going to be unified around the language of what it takes to do something truly great. And, and those two pieces of, of research very much come together on that. And I'm not surprised by her findings, but I'm absolutely delighted by them. Yep. So I want to ask you one last question and then I'm going to yeah. let you go. Um, so maybe I haven't done all of this as well as I could have or as I should have. And we're still young. <laughs> we just continue yep. to grow and learn. Right. So maybe we, I run an on right. Life begins at sixty. Exactly. <laughs> so it feels. I'm um, sixty two, so I can prove this. <laughs> actually, I'm sixty two also. Are you Yes. How about that? Ah. So we're right on the cusp of uh uh, of the best 30 years, uh, health and luck permitting. Although I have uh, to say during COVID, you know, I'm, I'm out about almost everything in my life, but I, the COVID epidemic has caused me to come out as an older American. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so, um, so let's say I run a nonprofit. This is your final, your final question, Mr. Collins. Um, and, and, you know, I'm, maybe I'm not as disciplined. Maybe I, I, I'm not as, I'm a little risk averse and my, I'm afraid if I try a pilot and it doesn't, doesn't work, I'm not, my board is going to think a little less of me or, you know, I'm a little, uh, uh, I, yeah, I'm paranoid, but I'm paranoid because I don't, uh, I'm a little risk averse, which by the way, if I may just say, people who run nonprofits are risk takers by their very, by their yep. very DNA, and so they're yep. and they're change agents. And I have to say, sometimes I find them to be the most risk averse mm. people who are the most resistant to change. It's kind of a uh, delicious irony. Um, what advice would you have for the folks that that aren't in the kind of place they probably needed to be during COVID? And and uh, and what advice would you have? Yeah, I guess that's the question: is what advice would you have? For a nonprofit leader that's sitting here and saying, oh my gosh, that's so smart. I should have done that. I should have done that. I should have done that. I actually didn't do those things. Um, do you have any advice for me, Jim Collins? Yeah. So um, I have a, a couple things that I'd like to, to offer. The, uh, the first is actually, uh, there's also a number of businesses and companies that are in the same spot and they've asked the same question. And uh, so the, the way I... Uh, I think about this is that you, you know, we go back to that idea of the oxygen canisters, right? You wish you would have had more oxygen canisters. And, um, and so I, I would suggest two things. The first is to ask the question, what are our oxygen canisters? Uh, that could, so that in, is there any version of going down the mountain that allows us to kind of, you know, sort of try to get through the storm? And also, is there a way to be able to shore up or borrow oxygen canisters from others, but also to think mm -hmm. that oxygen canisters 
oxygen canisters are not just cash. Mm-hmm. The, 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 the really critical oxygen canister, I've seen this in business too, but I really like to ask people to think about is relationships. Ugh. And, um, and, and the question to, I had a, I had a business that was like wrestling with this and said, what, what advice would you have? I, I said, I have one question for you. Who can't afford to see you fail? And they have oxygen canisters. Who can't afford to see you fail? And, and, and then that became the path to oxygen canisters to get through. And so as a nonprofit, we're, we're very close to uh, a nonprofit here in Colorado that uh, helps low-income kids get through college. Okay. And they gotten hit by this as well. And they set up a special needs funds for the kids to help them get through this time because actually being a, a kid with low income hit at this time is very difficult. Yep. And, and they said, but what they did was they reached out to their relationships and the relationships. So some of us are in a more fortunate position that we have oxygen canisters, but what they did was they came and said, we need some oxygen canisters. Now it's not going to do us any good six months or 12 months from now. Cause they, can you, can you give oxygen canisters at this time? And they provided a mechanism and they drew on relationships. Mm -hmm. So that's where I always say is who can't afford to see you fail, who has oxygen canisters and ask them to help. One of the things that's really, I just want to go back to for those who have oxygen canisters. When David Brashears was on Everest that time in 1996 and the storm happened, he also did something else. He didn't just protect his own oxygen canisters so he could come back another day. He also freely gave up some of his oxygen canisters to help in the rescue and to help to save some of the climbers that got caught on the storm. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways that if you're fortunate enough to be strong at this time, people say, how do I deal with uncertainty? Something I learned from my friends in the military, when things are really, really hard, your first question should be, how can I help someone else? How can I help someone else? And you want to talk about sort of an uplifting response to when you feel like you're clobbered and you just are like, oh my goodness, I am really scared. When you are really scared, how can you help someone else? That is a message I would love everyone to take and some can help. Um, and I think we're going to just leave it right there. Um, and I, and, and you're, you're, you're singing to the choir there with the, how can I help someone else? Because you're speaking to a, you know, an audience of people that are in the helping business and, uh, and it can, it can, I've seen it. It can refuel you. Yep. It can put ga- gas, oxygen back in your canister, gas back in your tank or whatever the metaphor is, right? But it, it actually, I mean, you know, I could just say, you know, I, I think it's one of the reasons that you, you said yes when we asked you if you wanted to do this is, gee, I, I can, I got a little oxygen, I got an oxygen canister. It's called research and data and information. And yep. I'd like to share it with you. And, um, and so this has been a, just a big old oxygen canister for my audience. And it has actually, you know, presumably you said yes, because it's going to, when you get off this podcast, you probably feel good that you reached a lot of people with some of this message. And that's, to me, that's why I love what I do for a living is that, um, is just, it's, it's so rewarding to be able to be helpful to the people who are in the helping business. So, 
Um, Jim Collins, um, I can't thank you enough for your work and for um, taking the time. And I have I have heard that I am standing between you and a trip to the dentist. So we could keep- <laughs> we could go on for a long time. Yeah. So he but- said he had all afternoon. He could cancel his dentist appointment. But I think well, now that the dentist is open, I think there's a lot of people that are online to get to the dentist and you should be on that line. Well, I, uh, I I just will close with a great appreciation and, and with circling all the way back to something we said at the beginning. Uh, and that is that um, it's, a, it's a real privilege to, to, to reach uh, the folks that you reach. Uh, I believe first and foremost in the principle of first two, always work with the right people, right? Yep. And part of what really drew me to do this is you are of service to the nonprofit world. Uh, you're incredibly passionate about it, but we're also very, very disciplined. Uh, I add very few of these things to my calendar because I have to go to Monk Club, right? As I was yeah. joking earlier, I'm, I'm kind of genetically encoded for social distancing. <laughs> and, um, you know, but, but we got to know you through your, through your work and your podcast and the, uh, the integrity of intent that you bring to it. And it was a very much a first who thing. It's because of you. And uh, I just wanted you to know that. And to um, just say that it's been a, a great privilege uh, to be able to join you in uh, in the cause of serving those who serve others. Um, th- thank you. That um, that means a lot coming from you. And I thank you for a totally marvelous conversation. Take good care, Jim. You too. Thanks so much for listening. And I hope you found the conversation to be valuable. If you enjoyed the podcast, remember to subscribe to it. And if you're feeling especially generous, leave us a review. Turns out that reviews really matter. They help people discover the podcast. (laughs) And if there's anything in this episode or any episode that really struck you as an aha moment, we'd love to know. Shoot us an email at podcast at joangary.com. And if you'd like to learn more about nonprofit leadership, head on over to my website at joangary.com. That's J-O-A-N-G-A-R-R-Y.com. It's full of advice and resources that you can put into action right away. And make sure to enter your email address so I can send you a surprise I think you'll find helpful. And if I haven't said it lately, thank you. Thank you so much for the important work you do every day to make this world a better place. I'll see you next time.